0: At IIMprem and Peter S, we've got Alex Holmes returning to the show today. Alex is CEO and director of Plateau Energy Metals, a lithium uranium development company advancing the Falchani and Macusani projects in southern Peru. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol PLU and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol PLU. U.F. Alex, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Andrew. Well, Alex, update us on the sectors both for lithium and uranium, and what is your outlook for 2020 here?
1: Well, let's let's start with lithium first. You know, 2019 was a tough year for all lithium-related equities, um, largely driven by uptake on the demand side, not really keeping pace with the supply coming on, and I think a lot of that related to just you know, really early days of the electrification of mobility. Um, and that's pretty natural. But I think what hasn't changed is that uh, if you look downstream of the providers of lithium chemicals, the raw material providers, the mines, um, the car manufacturers uh, are investing about $350 billion over the next five to 10 years um, in electrifying their models. And, and then if you go upstream of them to the, people that are actually making batteries, um, we've we've nearly doubled the number of battery plants to over 103, I think it is now, maybe it's 104, planned from now till 2028. And I think it's really important to put in perspective that 2015, we had three in the world. Um, so there's about 120, 130 billion being committed to battery plants. So uh, they're all going to need the raw materials and um, at some point we're gonna hit an inflection point. And I think that uh, over the last, six months, um, because we've had some major price pressure on lithium uh, chemicals, but also the spodumene concentrate products out of Australia, that um, expansion plans have been put on hold and um, and there's definitely been some production curtailed and in some cases some spodumene concentrate projects shut down. So, I think the kind of forecast gap by some third parties out there was around 2025 when Supply just wouldn't keep pace. Um, I think that's been brought forward by potentially even a couple of years. So I think that really starts to demonstrate that we're in this long-term secular trend, with and we're oscillating around, uh, you know, the lows and the highs on that path. Uh, so that's kind of our view on the lithium market. And I think for 2020, the um, uh, first half of the year may still be a little bit tough, uh, but I think that you know we get through uh, we get through trade war. I think things look a little more optimistic in China and Europe is really coming forward as I think, you know, kind of that second wave of of electric vehicles Um, and, you know, the rubber will start to hit the road and I think we'll see more optimism and sentiment shift and that'll directly reflect in the equities um, coming into the middle of this year, you know, the back half of 2020. Um, And in in, in the meantime, until we get to there, I think I would just watch for signs of, um, you know, watch the watch the big producers and how they're communicating because they're still long-term committed. Um, so that's lithium. And then on the uranium side, uh, I think we all thought that, you know, we would have had a bit of a, um, a pickup in the in the uranium sentiment. Um, we had spot prices come back a little bit after, after running quite strong in 2018 and then falling off again. Uh, it's come back in the spot market a bit. I don't think we've seen a lot of big contracts sign on the long-term basis. Um, you know, what we're hearing from the big producers is that the utilities want them to develop tier one assets, um, but for them to expand production or restart, you know, mines that are on care and maintenance, uh, they need much higher prices. So, I think the conversation, or I can only imagine the conversation happening at this stage is, you know, look, we're, we're not making money at the spot price, our term contracts are coming off over the next little while, um, we're the produce from the producer's perspective. We're very much in the driver's seat here, and if you want us to bring on tier one assets um, or expand current tier one assets, uh, you know this is the price we need, and the price is a lot higher than term contracts, which I think are sitting around 32, 33 dollars today. Um, so uh, I think it'll be really interesting to see how contracting conversations evolve over the first part of 2020 and if we see some things and the the trend on that contract price trending, you know, more towards 40, then I think that's a really positive signal for the uranium developers and explorers and that sentiment will will shift and I think, you know, speaking to the past, what we've seen in the past is when the sentiment shifts uh, on the uranium tape, the equities you know, respond very, very well and very quickly. So that's, I think, 2020 will be, should be this kind of turning point year. We did see a uh, new royalty, uranium royalty company IPO recently um, related to Uranium Energy Corp, and I think they had a very successful IPO oversubscribed. Um, so that's a pretty bullish signal as well, uh, I think, for, for the capital looking for exposure to uh,
0: to uranium. Well, as you know, investors have been cautious with both South and Central America coming off events in Chile, (coughs) uh, Bolivia, Argentina, Nicaragua, and of course uh, with the Venezuela debacle. How are things in Peru, Alex? And what are your thoughts on these recent events uh, throughout these countries?
1: That's a good question. Um, So, Peru is uh, recently, and and that was probably about two months ago, uh, the president of the country dissolved. dissolve Congress. Um, so it has a permanent Congress right now. It doesn't have a regular sitting Congress. Um, that means that everything that happens is effectively passed by presidential decree. Um, when that happened about two months ago, all of the ministers, new cabinet was formed, all the ministers were replaced of all the, all the different um, ministries. Um, you know, that kind of volatility is not something you like to see politically in, in any country. Um, however, This, you know, Peru has been through, um, it's got quite a long history of of political volatility, if you will. Um, And during all of that uh, volatility, the country continues to grow. Uh, It's got a very strong U.S. currency reserves. The currency is stable. Um, So while while government seems, you know, to, to slow down and progress at the government level slows down, um, the country economically still able to perform. <clears throat> so I think in Peru, um, you still have a very business friendly climate, um, you know, when Congress was dissolved, there was some protests on the street, but you know, it didn't really get extremely violent and uh, there wasn't much in the way of, of, of looting and ransacking um, like you might expect in, in some other countries. And I think there's, uh, yeah, I think some of the other countries in South America are very challenged right now. I look at Chile and, you know, things, constitutional changes and things like this are going to put, um, it's going to become more and more challenging for natural resource projects, uh, especially in areas where hot button topics like water scarcity um, are are a focus point of, uh, you know, kind of the cause of, of some of these, some of this unrest. Um, and Argentina going through a, a, a political change at the government level, party change. Um, you know, I think we're seeing we're seeing currency controls. And uh, look, I'm no Argentinian expert, but um, I think it certainly presents a more challenging situation for foreign capital looking to invest in in Argentina. So when I look around South America, I think Peru, despite despite the shortcomings that I've already talked about, I think uh, is a very strong position. Uh, about 65% of their exports are, are commodity-related or, or, or you know, natural resource-related. Um, foreign investments is, is a big thing there. Um, we have definitely seen some social unrest at natural resource projects over the last uh, year or so in Peru, and, and in, in a number of cases, a lot of that driven by you know the agricultural sector, the impact on agriculture. Um, you know, and these are things that are very important. Uh, that's social risk management. And, and, and CSR efforts are, are critical to any project moving forward. Um, so I think in Peru we have a we have a congressional election coming up in early 2020 and uh, a presidential election in 2021. Um, you know I think President Biscar did what he did uh, partially as a result of not having um, many seats in uh, in Congress and, uh, and he was looking to get things get things done. So that's, that's sort of a background on, on Peru, and I think just general, generally around South America. It's, um, Peru is one of the better places to be for a variety of reasons that I mentioned.
0: And Alex, can you speak to the, the local, a <coughs> little more on the local side? What's the status of the governorship uh, in your region where the projects exist? Can you speak to the status there and uh, anything you'd like to highlight?
1: Sure, yeah, so I'm trying to remember when we last spoke, I think it was early days of um, the new governor, Walter Atavere, coming in and there was a lot of um, skepticism around what uh, his agenda would be, um, being a governor for the first time and in politics for the first time and having a past that was connected to um, uh, certainly civil unrest. Um, So Walter Atavere is currently in jail. he was arrested, uh, as it relates to an ongoing case that was, that was still open um, to uh, the civil unrest that um, you know, he was accused of, of being a leader of uh, in 2011. And um, it's quite possible that uh, he gets out of uh, jail on appeal. Uh, in the meantime, the vice governor, Vice Governor Augusto, uh, is, is effectively um, you know, running the show. Stratovary's behalf. Um, for us, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time our team on the ground getting to better understand Walter Stratovary. Um, his uh, his brother is uh, actually a chemical engineer working in the in the mining space, um, and so that was a great avenue for us to, you know, talk about lithium and Puno and, and our uranium project in Puno. You know, it's, it's a project that is really an industrial complex, and this is not something where you can send in a whole bunch of artisanal miners and try to extract with you, because you can't do that. Um, <clears throat> it's a highly specialized chemical process, and, you know, through that, uh, those conversations uh, with Mr. Adiviri and his team, um, we got a much better appreciation of uh, what matters to them, and I know he visited the communities in our area and got a, got a sense of how we were as um you know, being good uh, you know, corporate citizens in our host communities. So, you know, funnily enough, despite people sort of really you know, focusing in on, on him being a key risk for any projects in the region, um, we managed to strike up a strong relationship. That's the current status of the governorship in the region and then Vice Governor Augusto who's, um, you know, hasn't stepped in as with the governor title at this point. Um, he's actually from a different party um, He's uh, Ketcha, instead says by which when I'm talking about Ketcha and I, Mar, that's uh, the indigenous um, side of of uh, the cultural side, and uh, and he's we've known him for quite a number of years. He's uh, much more call it um, PR friendly, supportive of mining as opposed to Mr. Udaviri. Um You know, there was certainly some some uh, concerns around anything he said publicly as it relates to uh, Natural resource development, but at the end of the day, like I said, um, we found a way to to communicate well with uh, with him and his party, and, and recognize that the big things the things we're doing in the communities are exactly what he would like to see for companies operating in the region. And uh, you know, respecting culture and the environment are are key key factors.
0: Well, I appreciate the update on that, Alex. Let's get into some further administrative matters what is the status of the concessions dispute and how long do you see this taking to be resolved
1: sure so i'm assuming everybody listening knows the background um something that started in 2018 middle of 2018 um, and uh, really only came to light uh, sort of july august as, as being you know problematic for us um, we've 32 concessions of a total concession package of 151 um, those 32 concessions are more or less random throughout our project area. Um, however, some of them impacts some of our uranium resource and one of them impacts uh, our lithium resource. And It all revolves around uh, a claim by the geologic uh, administrative party or group I should say that uh, we were late on payments in 2018 uh, when in fact we weren't and it's more the um, administrative booking of deposits um, and applying them to concessions that uh, this geologic group that claims, claims are laid on. So anyways, we went through an administrative heavy, administratively heavy process um, for a few months and the outcome of that was my arbitration panel determined that, um, that uh, yeah we didn't deliver uh, the payments by, during the opening hours of, of the geologic administrative group. Um, and so what we've since done since that outcome, because it's clear that they did not take into account the general mining law or the fact that the funds were in the geologic admins group and that the receipts were delivered within the timeframe allowed by the law, um, we had to resort uh, to, to a dual track process. So the second track on that process is a judicial process, which is um, you know, under administrative law. And... Uh, we are pursuing that to protect the assets of our stakeholders. Um, we are going through a process to file injunctions um, and then to pursue a judicial path. At the same time, the administrative path remains uh, open and can stay open for a period of two years post uh, post that arbitration panel's decision. and. Um, where why I think that administrative path is is important is because uh, at any time that mining council can uh, auto change their opinion, it's called and effectively uh, reverse their opinion based on you know consideration of of, um, <clears throat> of the events. So on the administrative side, we continue to work with the uh, Ministry of Energy and Mines, and unfortunately we had a um, hit a speed bump when Congress was dissolved. There was a new Mines Minister appointed. So we had made a lot of progress uh, with the previous Mines Minister and now we're focused on working with the current Mines Minister. Um, he's only been in the hot seat for probably about seven, eight weeks now. So as you can imagine, he's got a lot of things on his list of things to do. Um, we're one of them. And on the judicial path, uh, focusing on getting two injunctions first, what that effectively would do is um, is uh, you know, freeze time, reverse what's happened until a judicial path is, is seen through. And a judicial path could take anywhere from, you know, twelve months to three, four years. Um, in the meantime, what that does is uh, all the concessions stay in our name, and we continue to work on them if we want. Pay um, the good standing fees. Um, I think why that's important is because, um, you know, it 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 freezes them from being able to go anywhere to anyone else or up for auction. And uh, in the meantime, what we'll do is continue to focus on the assets we do have because I think what the market has forgotten uh, is that uh, we still have a very large lithium resource, we still have a very large uranium resource um, without those concessions and there's a lot of uh, work we can do to advance advance uh, certainly our lithium project um, with a call it a smaller case scenario but when I say smaller, I'm still you know, referring to quite a significant project.
0: Very well, Alex. I appreciate the information. Uh, can you speak to two other things on this topic? Um, can you speak to the legal team that you've employed to pursue this process? How confident are you of their ability to deliver uh, in the company's favor? And then secondly, this dispute, can you give us just a ballpark figure about how much this dispute was over? Are we talking a couple hundred thousand dollars? Are we talking about a million dollars? What what's the bottom line cost arising out of this dispute? What was it over in terms of cost? In
1: 2000,
0: uh, this is
1: all in our public record. But in 2017, uh, a, a couple of auditors, independent auditors, reviewed concessions at, all over the country and determined whether companies had been um, underspent on those concessions in accordance with. Uh, as concessions age, they're required to spend uh, capital on those concessions, and we were initially issued a penalty of 2.7 million U.S. dollars um, on our concessions, um, which was completely wrong. And uh, because you know we've invested a lot of capital in in that whole uh, in the plateau, if you will, over uh, <clears throat> quite a number of years, and so we ended this process of um, you know discussion negotiation providing backup documentation etc to show where that the auditing firm was wrong and uh, I think that that penalty went from 2.7 to 2 point1 to 1.8 to 1.1 and basically where we landed um, unfortunately quite late in June which is near the time when concession payments are due um, the Ministry of Energy and mines and, and the tax authority agreed uh, we had actually overspent on these 32 concessions. So the 500,000 US penalty was not something that needed to be paid. And on the other ones, um, we hadn't overspent and, and we had a penalty. So on the ones we agreed to, we had a penalty. That amount was determined. It's just over half a million dollars. Uh, we paid that. And on the 32, they said, yeah, we will issue you what is called a, effectively called a non-penalty resolution. So something that notifies Ingemet um, an official document that says on these 32 concessions the company has no penalty to pay. Unfortunately, that document, in the way it works itself through the bureaucracy of the system, while there was an agreement in principle on the 25th of June, on the 27th of June, the recommendation from Minam went from the General Director of Promotion, Mineral Promotion, to the Director General of General's Desk. That's, that's, that was the Thursday, and the, and the payments were due on the Monday, the 2nd July 2nd. Uh, sat on his desk for Friday, and on July 2nd, Monday, he issued a resolution, which was delivered to us just after 4 p.m. on July 2nd. Until that resolution is issued, the uh, bank, the National Bank, which has the bank account for Ingemet, um, has digital records of every concession. And until that non-penalty resolution is delivered, the bank can't accept payment from us for anything other than the good standing fees plus the penalty, the half a million dollars. Once they had the non-penalty resolution, they could accept payment from us just for the good standing fees. And so uh, once we had that, uh, we were already at the bank, and so they started accepting payments. So I don't know if that answers your question um, with regards to kind of the the cost, which was about half a million dollars. Um, That was not in dispute because that had been agreed to. I think what's in dispute is the belief that Ingemet, uh did not receive the money before um, by the end of day on July 7th uh, because they believe that the end of day is 4:30 p.m. Uh, however, the general law, mining law, and the administrative law stipulates um, that the end of day is is the end of day 11:59. So they had all the capital in their in their bank account, and uh, it was the matching of receipts that uh, needed to be done and they had the receipts. So then with regards to our legal counsel, we're working with a firm called the Studio Grau. They're a, a great legal firm. We, we did have to switch tax part way through. Uh, we didn't feel we were being properly represented, fully represented. Uh, we have three lawyers on our own team um, and then we work with the Studio Grau and uh, they represent us both on the administrative side and the uh, judicial side.
0: Okay, so if you, if you go here and you, you attempt to make a payment but you don't have the receipt or the, the document they need to accept that payment, they won't accept the payment. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So every, yeah, exactly. So every concession is a, its own bank account effectively. It's got a digital code, right? So Andrew has a, has a, a concession and it's number one, two, three. So that concession one, two, three has every year you have to pay a good standing fee. Let's say it's a thousand dollars for your concession. Um, and this particular year they said, Oh, you also have to pay hundred grand for, for penalties. Well, those penalties aren't accurate, and in fact, they're zero. So the bank can say, Well, you can do you need to pay on code one, two, three, but you're gonna have to pay us a hundred thousand plus the one thousand dollars. And Andrew says, Well, wait a minute, I don't have a penalty on those, that's not acceptable. Um, and why would I give you a hundred thousand dollars? That's not right, um, just because an accounting firm miscalculated. Um, and I already know that the Ministry of Energy and Mines has accepted and acknowledged the fact we're just waiting on this document. So the bank says, okay, bring the document back when you're ready. So on the day of, the final day, Andrew goes in to pay. Well, concession one, two, three still says a hundred thousand because uh, this digital record hasn't been updated yet. Um, so show us the document, the non-penalty resolution signed by the Director General of Mining at Ministry of Energy and Mines. So Andrew. Provides the document. And the teller says, "Okay, well, we'll put this under a what's called a unique code, a general code. It's 999. So it won't be attached to con- concession one, two, three. But I'll give you the receipt, and you have up to 48 hours after the deadline to deliver that receipt to uh, the geologic group. And so Andrew goes and shows the receipts on the final day, and Inga met accepts some of them, but not all of them. And then the next day, Andrew goes and delivers, you know, receipt for concession one, two, three, but it's in a general account, and Inghamet says, okay, thank you, and then later dating, and that says, we never got the money, and you were late. That's effectively what happened.
0: Well, that sounds, uh, sounds like routine Central and South America processes, which uh, to many North Americans don't make a lot of sense, and uh, certainly mm-hmm. I know the complexities of dealing with some of these these businesses uh, in some of the countries that I've dealt with. And I certainly certainly have to shake my head at certain things. And it's certainly a detailed process that's uh, you really <laughs> is, is is quite uh, complex to get your head around. Well, let's move on here, Alex. Uh, so as the matter draws out, is management taking steps to keep costs reduced in an effort to delay further financings while you go through the process? What is being done here to optimize on both GNA and project expense at this point
1: yeah so we've definitely um, we've definitely cut costs in a number of areas um, you know we don't want to blow out our capital structure uh, because we need you know uh, loads more capital to keep to keep moving forward um, so we've we've managed to cut costs in some of the like non salary GNA areas we've cut costs in the salary area in terms of trimming our team um, in-country a bit uh, just during this time. Um, what, we're, what we are going to focus on is once we have our um, our injunctions in place is we will be putting out a preliminary economic assessment on lithium project and we're going to present investors with two scenarios. We're going to present them with a we call it our base case scenario which is uh, effectively, a mine plan based on the resource in both concessions. Uh, one of them that's impacted by this administrative process or issue that we're in, and the other one that's totally outside of that. But the deposit covers both of those concessions, and then we're going to provide investors also with an alternative case, as we call it, and the alternative case will only focus on the one concession that's completely unimpacted by the 32 that we're in the process of trying to fix right now. And so investors can look at that and say, here's my downside, here's my upside. Um, And I think that this is, you know, there's a disconnect in value here. So I think it's worth more. And I think what that'll help us do is uh, help us get, uh, you know, have some more value recognized in the stock because of the disconnect between value. And then allow us to finance um, at not such dilutive levels. To be able to continue to work, because I think some of the important pieces of work that we should be doing, um, even while we try to resolve this, is we've still got an asset without them. And um, there's potential other value, um, value within the asset that we are not including in the PEA. And when I refer to that, what I'm really talking about is is metallurgical work and processing work. So whether it's improvements to the process path, optimizing it for you know to drive lower opEx um, or whether it's byproducts. And we've got a series of potential byproducts that we're testing for now. Um, those are all things that add value. And so we're able to show people sort of a base case and an alternative case. And here is what it is, lithium-only project. And then we can come back later and look at if there's some potential byproduct revenue here that can improve the economics over here. Um, and we've also optimized the process, which has led us to identify you know, some lower operating cost opportunities. And, um, and those are not huge capital spend items, but I like to you know, position them as their, their great returns on your investment, um, and they de-risk the project
0: at the same time. And Alex, what is the expected capital consumption rate during 2020, assuming the concession issue will take most of the year to resolve? What can investors expect as far as the size and timing of the next capital raise? Can you speak a little bit to that?
1: Yeah, I think um, we'll take a staged approach to we won't uh, look to raise all the capital we need for 2020. Again, trying to trying to be disciplined about um, not raising it all at one level. Um, so I think we'll look at breaking the year up and with our next raise. Uh, so the total year, maybe somewhere around. million Canadian, Um, but what we'll be looking at is what are the low cost, high ROI pieces of work that we can do on the project that make it a better project, because that will bring more value to the asset, which should get reflected ultimately in the share price, which means that when we go to raise for the balance of the year, um, it's at an incrementally higher level as
0: well. And to confirm, so right now all work is essentially stopped as far as further exploration work, and. The only thing that's ongoing right now is the economic uh, study, the PEA for the Falchani lithium deposit. Is that correct?
1: Uh, And we have all exploration stopped for now. It's rainy season now. Uh, We're not going to mobilize in the rainy season, even though we've drilled through it. It's much easier to mobilize in the dry season. We are doing work on metallurgical work on the byproduct potential right now. So, uh, like I said, while we are intentionally not including any other byproducts in the PEA, and that's really to show that we have a lithium chemical project that stands on its own, stands on its own just for lithium. Um, the metallurgical work program started in it was around mid-October uh, to look at the byproducts, and we've identified those potential byproducts in our flow sheet in the pro, in the network program that we put out in um, in July, and we'll also talk about them in the PEA as, as opportunities, uh, and then hopefully, looking Q1, we'll be able to communicate to the market we've identified that we're able to extract and produce XYZ additional potential products.
0: And Alex, can you speak just a little bit more on the litigation front? You said there's kind of two options at this point to proceed forward and and those would be uh, attempted together, I believe, if if I understood that right. When will that decision be made to go after all options? Um, Are you guys waiting on something and and can you give us kind of the short-term look on how long it's gonna take to make that decision to go to full litigation?
1: Uh, Well, we're in that full litigation now. So, um, you know, October, uh, so basically the system, what the system is set up to do is while the administrative process can remain, the decision can remain open to change for two years uh, on the administrative side, you're forced to start a judicial process. And if you don't force that, then you basically forego your right to, to do it. And so we started that in October. And that's, so we've got, I guess, judicially we have two tracks. One is injunctions, which is part of it. Parallel to that is the judicial process, which started in October. Separate from that is the administrative process. So uh, we can stop the judicial process at any time if we get a um, you know, positive change of opinion, but we have to pursue it
0: regardless. Can you speak to time frame, um, I know you mentioned it before, pretty wide window. Can you speak to any more time frame? Is this something you guys are confident that can be resolved relatively quickly or do you really see this taking three, four years?
1: Our council's quite confident this will be resolved fairly quickly. Right now I'm not in a position to you know, provide guidance to the market on how quickly we think we'll, it'll, it'll resolve itself. Um, there's potentially three instances of three levels of court that this judicial process can go through. So you're dealing with w- how the system works in, in cases of administrative law like this. Is uh, you have a you have three layers of court. Uh, first instance court, and then you have a superior court, and then you have a supreme court. And the first instance of court is where we apply for the injunctions, and the injunctions are, um, like I said, things that freeze time and reverse. Everything that's happened, in as a temporary measure until the judicial process is seen out. Now, the judge that issues the injunctions is the same judge that oversees the case, and so I think that's important for investors to really watch for uh, the tone, the language of what's what's within the injunctions themselves, right? Okay? Because that's sort of you know effectively what that means is an injunction. You can't just put an injunction in place without having a case and a judge a judge looks at uh, applications for injunctions all the time. And what they want is they don't want frivolous injunctions, they want ones that have merit. And so when you go to apply for an injunction, you have to provide all the evidence, all the arguments, et cetera, that support your reason for your injunction. So for us, for example, we've had to provide notarized copies of all the documents, certified copies of all the receipts, the timelines, everything and presented our arguments. So when the judge sees that, and then they issue uh, a notice to Ministry of Energy and Mines and to Incomet, who's that geologic admin group I mentioned earlier, uh, you have 10 days to respond to this. So that 10 days passed, and uh, and, and then they consider putting the injunctions in place. And they'll put them in the injunctions in place on the merit of the case. And so really important for investors to look for the, the language that's used in those injunctions um, and when they come. And then also, um, because that same judge oversees the... The first is the judicial case, um, you know, I think they basically shared their opinion through issuing the injunctions on what they believe. Uh, from that point, for we're successful in that, that instance, um, uh, Ministry of Energy and Mines and in INAMET could appeal. I suspect they will appeal. I mean, it's sort of their, their legal, it's their job to do to do that. That's what they're there. Their legal departments are there to represent. And the, the Ministry of Energy and Mines legal department is totally separate and different than legal department of internet And that's really sp- important to recognize. Um, and then, that would, then it would go to Superior Court. And that could take us several months as well. And so I guess where I'm optimistic is the facts speak for themselves. Uh, as you can imagine, we've had a lot of conversations with the Ministry of Energy and Mines. Uh, mines, they've reviewed this legally. Um, I think we're in a strong position there. Um, But, uh, you know, we still have to proceed through a judicial process that is equally as bureaucratic. Um, So, what I think is important for investors to keep in mind is watch for the injunctions, the language that will communicate the language of those injunctions, and then watch for the economic study in the lithium project, and you can look at two scenarios. You can make your own decision based on the alternative case scenario, uh, what kind of project it is and, and where you think it's worth, and then you'll have the base case, which is here. Call your upside scenario. All these concessions get resolved. Um, but regardless, you still have a project, and it's got an ability and a path to move forward. Um, and, you know, it's probably the summary how I would, I would watch things over the next little while.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing how this goes, and uh, hopefully, there's a, a good, uh, reasonable um, resolution that, that benefits both parties here. Um, I think it's. I think at the end of the day, the big picture points in one direction. Well, let's talk uh, capital structure at this point, Alex. How many shares are out at this point, and what key backers remain on the shareholder roster?
1: Sure. So we have about uh, 85, 86 million shares, basic outstanding, about one hundred and one fully diluted. Um, we, so that was up from around 79, uh, post that last financing we did. Um, what was great to see in the last financing actually was um, the management and directors, insiders really stepped up um, to support the company. I think you know, that's a, a statement to what we believe in, um, not only our confidence in, in kind of where things will go with the concessions, but also just the projects themselves. I think we've uh, probably increased our, our management director ownership in that last financing. Um, we brought in some new, some new capital out of, um, out of Calgary. So it was traditional oil and gas money, high net worth uh, investor that came in. And then, of course, our cornerstone shareholders uh, uh, at Haywood Securities are still big holders. And we have a couple of investors in Europe that um, actually uh, participated and increased their position in the last financing as well. Generally speaking, our, you know, our institutional shareholder ownership is roughly the same as what it was the last time we spoke, uh, around 15%. Uh, we've got some strong high net worth investors out of the U.S. that uh, I believe have actually been increasing their positions and a couple of new people that look at the value disconnect of the two assets from where we're trading at today. Um, you know, I think really today, in the world of lithium, we're arguably as down as, as far as anybody else is really underperformed that space and we've been thrown um, a concessions issue on top of that. So I think we're faring well relative to that lithium of space um, and uranium uh, you know we're probably underperforming the, the uranium piers um, but not dramatically. Um, so I think there's a lot of investors that are starting to watch. They're on the sidelines some of them want to see um, you know some positive progress on the judicial side and a PEA so they're actively watching for that but they're just simply looking at a value opportunity that they already accept <clears throat> the macro picture of what's changing out there and the way in the consumer habits as we you know transport ourselves um, and that electric vehicles are coming regardless it's just a question of when um, and they're looking at the asset level value and they're just seeing that you know they 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 add up to much more than where the company's trading at today so you take a macro level view you take into account that you know the sentiment in lithium and uranium is pretty weak right now um, but you buy into the fact that both or or one of those is going to um, come back in favor in the next 12 months and um and you sort of park the concession noise as um, getting – is definitely priced in, and there's still a you know, good-sized good asset here to get behind. And that's what we're seeing people sort of wake up to um, and starting to position themselves ahead of any positive news.
0: Well, let's talk lithium prices for a moment. Uh, how are producers doing at current lithium prices? And Alex, assuming the feasibility is there, what prices for lithium – ballpark prices, if you would, um, are needed to make those development decisions at Falchani.
1: I think a really important thing to bear in mind is there's no one lithium price. You don't get a, if you have a lithium carbonate, if you're battery grade, which means 99.5% and up, it's all about what's in the impurities. Um, those prices, it's all off-taking contract based, right? And you have lithium hydroxide and you have spodumene concentrate. Spodumene concentrate is what the Australian uh, mines produce. So, spodumene concentrate has come down from about nine hundred dollars a ton to uh, we just saw one of the one of the big producers in, the, in Australia say that they were looking for about five hundred, you know, just over five hundred dollars a ton in this uh, this quarter, which is a huge drop. Um, if you look across to the kind of the South American Uh, lithium chemical projects you have two versions you have some companies that are only really able to produce a technical grade product which is below 99.5 percent and they're effectively dumping it wherever they can um, because there's not a lot of uptake for that right so that's like things like ceramics as an example Um, that's not the high growth market that's a that's basically grows at the rate of gdp and then you have the high growth market which last year or this year i should say um lithium, battery-grade lithium chemicals, that grew at nearly 20% this year, yet you've got prices down about 20%. So there's this paradox that's happening with demand up and prices down. Um, So for investors, I think, you know, unfortunately the best source of information, if you don't have a subscription to one of these independent providers, is to look at the quarterly financials of the big producers like SQM, Albemarle. But don't look at their average price, see if you can find what they sold battery grade chemical products for versus technical grade, there's a big difference, like a couple of thousand to $3,000 per ton. Um, So to get back to your question, I think what any of the development projects need today to get built um, is an incentive price of $10,000 per ton, Uh, we're sitting around 9,500 per ton for battery grade lithium. Carbonate today, um, based on contract prices of what we've seen, um, they remain higher in Japan and Korea, and China's lower. Uh, Japan and Korea are like the tier one battery manufacturers, and they're still somewhere between ten and fourteen thousand um, dollars. Whereas, whereas China on the spot market is a lot less, but the spots are very small part of the market. Uh, what we're looking to do with Felchani in our first instance with our PEA is, uh, you know, like I said, excluding byproducts, which we think will ultimately drive down the the operating cost net of byproducts. So we're just looking at a lithium-only case. Um, We're in the lower half of the cost curve, which is a good place to be. Middle of the cost curve for 2025 is roughly $5,500 per tonne. And uh, we have a lot of advantages to the location of the project, uh, lower labor costs, we have access to in-country sourcing of raw materials, uh, the consumables that we use for the project. Um, we're scoping on a project that has a acid plant on site, which means that uh, that acid plant, through its process, um, is able to recapture heat to create energy, and so it becomes a self-sufficient project effectively um, through that. And so we're able to incorporate various parts of engineering as well as working with local local costs um, to create a very cost-competitive project and uh, I think as importantly one that's scalable because it's hard rock and not a brine, uh, one that can scale up and produce a a large quantity of battery-grade lithium chemicals.
0: And assuming battery-grade projects, Alex, what makes makes a hard, and you alluded to it for just a moment here, what makes a hard rock lithium deposit such as Valchani more economical and more viable over a salt basin-type deposit?
1: There's probably a couple ways to answer that. So the cash operating costs of a brine project are always, they're very competitive, right, because it's a a low operating cost intensity Um, process path. Uh, where you're relying on solar evaporation to um, slowly uh, concentrate the brine solution down to a a more lithium-rich solution. The the challenging things of brines is it might take you 12 to 15 months to get to that point of evaporation. And along the way, you lose a bit of lithium every time. So your recoveries might be – your yield might be like 40%. The other thing is you're exposed to whatever the geochemical makeup is in that fluid – uh, the brine, which changes in time, time and space, right? So you design a process plant that is capable of dealing based on the design criteria when you start day one, but by year 10 or 15, uh, the geochemical makeup of that brine is different than when you started that. So your process isn't necessarily optimized for that. And so you've got the long time to get to an end product, call it 16 months. And because of the exposure to the environmental factors, you're not as in control of the end product you produce, right? Garbage in, garbage out type scenario. So what Brian projects tend to have is they have, some of their product is technical grade, and some of it is battery grade. And as I mentioned earlier, technical grade comes at a lot less, uh, a lot lower price point. For Felchani, it's a, it's a hard rock, so we're not having liquids and things moving around within that, right? So it's it's a static structure. Um, it's fairly homogeneous. The lithium grade uh, changes within that um, within our lithium-rich zone, but really between 3,000 and 4,000 ppm, that doesn't change much. And the other thing is, we're in control of. We have a couple of factors to our benefit versus a brine in the sense that our process path is uh, mechanical. And so we, uh, we heat our leaching agent, which is sulfuric acid, which uh, leaches from the, the rock, the mineralized material, lithium into a lithium sulfate solution. And then everything we do downstream there is very similar to what the brines do after they've done 14, 15 months of evaporation. And so we have impurities removal, which is fairly standard, and we have mechanical evaporation versus solar because we've got a higher-grade higher, higher grade lithium-rich sulfate solution. And then we precipitate a carbonate product out. And so we've got mechanical control and temperature to deal with. A brine project has ambient temperature, whatever it is at, at their project location, um, whereas <clears throat> we have temperature and we're able to play with that delta of... Uh, acidity, as well as or pH, I should say, as well as, um, as as temperature, and those are factors that when you're dealing with chemical processing, chemistry are um, great tools to have at your disposal to fine-tune, you know, your end product. And then I would add to that the consistency of the ore body um, is also a big benefit. So we're about 48 hours to an end product versus 16 months in a brine, and we have a, and we have process control factors. That I think are beneficial, and so all of those things taken into account uh, should be able to produce a more predictable, consistent product. And I'll go back to the operating cost side. I think we'll be ultimately we're cost competitive because we've got, you know, we'll have more predictability of battery grade versus a mix of battery and technical grade as the brines have. Um, as well, if you look to Chile and Argentina. Um, you know, the cost, the cash cost, maybe around $3,000 per ton. But in Chile, once you bring in the progressive commission rates, you get up near five and $6,000 a ton. And in Argentina, you're sort of around 3500 per ton, um, plus there's a royalty. And, um, you know, I'm ignoring currency controls and other things where, where, where you get, you know, a coupon gets taken off of your cash on the way in
0: and out. Now, Alex, at this point in the cycle, do you see that uranium has more upside room to run versus lithium? And as a result, how are you allocating capital to take advantage? Is it it more towards lithium at this point for you?
1: I'm not sure I agree with that. Uranium has more upside room to run. I think it's it's interesting, the two, obviously two very different markets. Lithium, you've got a structural change in the way lithium chemicals are used um, that's being driven by A lot of capital over you know call it 500 billion dollars of capital changing the way we drive and the way we store power and the forecast growth rate for lithium chemicals is 20 percent a year over the next 10 years that's a very different marketplace and environment that's a that's a massive structural change with uranium i don't think we're not seeing a nuclear renaissance um we're not seeing um while we are seeing reactors being built we're not seeing 20 percent growth a year um, we are seeing projected growth I, I think the uh, world nuclear associations projected growth out to 2040 and and we have a uh, we do have a supply gap that starts to appear um, <clears throat> I think uranium where it's different is that none of the producers are making money if they were to have to sell it contract at term prices today at 32 33 a dollar. They're not. They're not making any money. So there's no incentive for them to uh, sign big contracts at those prices. There's no incentive for them to build new projects, um, and their existing projects are are challenged um, because they're they're cash flow neutral or negative. Um, so, you know, uranium. I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, it tends to the equities tend to react very strongly to a shift in sentiment. So if we started to see contracts selling at $40 per ton, long-term contracts by the big producers, I think we could see the uranium equities react very violently um, to the upside uh, just because we've seen that done in the past. In lithium, um, the whole space is down. In the in the junior explorer developer end, it's down about 80%. Meanwhile, demand is up. So that disconnect tells me that, um, yeah, we might not get to the euphoria of, things might not go back to where they were in 2016, 17. However, um, being down 80% leaves a lot of room just to get back to a you know a reasonable valuation relative to what is a major structural shift going on outside of the raw material space. So I think it's two different ways to look at it. But um, in terms of our capital today, so, for uranium, what we really need to see, i, I earlier this year, um, or late last year, we said we'll, we would do some optimization work on our project. Um, we really need to see those regulations that we talked about in our last call coming to um, get implemented in Peru. Um, you know, in our last last time we spoke, <clears throat> I think I was cautious about being as optimistic as what you know the President had mentioned. Um, in, in 2018 in terms of the timeline, but I can say that on a couple of occasions recently, uh, the Vice Minister of Energy and Mines, uh, Augusta Coutty, um has publicly stated that uh, we are actively working on the regulations and we'll have them in place in the first half or second half of 2020. So that's positive because it's really, for me, it's the first time I've seen the ministry publicly on a couple of occasions uh, put guidelines to that timing. I know they're actively having working groups. I know that through our uh, various embassies in Peru that, that have, um, you know, pitched in or reviewed the drafts, that they're, they're, they've they signed off on those now. So the right things are happening, the right movement's happening, and when we see those regulations in place, that'll be a lot easier for us to dedicate capital towards uh, the uranium project. Until then, we're, as we already talked about earlier, we're sort of on a slower capital investment spend right now.
0: And Alex, what is the road forward for Falcione? Assuming the concession issue is fully resolved tomorrow, Mm -hmm. what is the timeline, what is the anticipated study path? I know we've got PEAs coming, but what's the study path after that to get to a decision and can you speak to offtake or joint venture uh, as far as the route you might want to take? Can you share some thoughts with us on timeline studies?
1: Yes. So um, the two deck study stages are pre-feasibility study and, and definitive feasibility study, and then you know, construction decision with project finance, etc. Um, roughly speaking, we're looking at about 15 months for pre-feasibility study, followed by about 20 months for feasibility and permitting. And we've allowed in that timeline for an overlap of permitting uh, to go concurrent with the feasibility and the project finance stage, we would start well before the feasibility is done to, to bring the possible parties in early. So uh, if you called it three years to the point of um, construction decision, and that's about a two year construction cycle. So five years, I'm assuming there's no hiccups Concessions resolved tomorrow. Even if the concessions aren't resolved tomorrow, we would still focus on the alternative case project, right? Because that's still a buildable project. So we can ignore the concessions. I would say probably the you know the typical delays that come in um, to advancing these projects is, is timeline to available capital. How quickly that comes. So. Let's focus on the first next step, which is the pre-feasibility study. And the way we're looking at things right now is, we will, um, to get to pre-feasibility study, there's a lot of capital needed to um, infill drill, to take everything to reserve status. And and then of course, there's metallurgy and, and um, uh, processing and the engineering part of it. But the I would say the most capital intensive part is the infill drilling. So I think what we'll do for 2020, is we will focus on the metallurgy and processing side to de-risk that further. Um, you know, not a lot of projects, or not enough projects, to focus on that early on. Um, those are lower capital uh, uh, investments, um, but they, at the end of the day, they are some of the biggest things that de-risk the project. I mean, the our deposits not going anywhere. It's fairly consistent. It's flat flatlining. Um, and uh, you know, it's, I think we've talked about this before, it's like a big coal seam, right? So it's a big bulk tons deposit. Um, so we can push the infill drilling down the road a little bit, focus on the processing, which will add, uh, we think will add tremendous value um, for that investment on capital. Um, in terms of uh, things like offtake, um, what we're thinking about is, uh, as a lithium project, you need to go through a qualification process the qualification process of your product that you would produce uh, can take two years. And and then you get to an offtake. So generally, you would start with like an MOU, and then and then they would, you'd start the qualification process, and by the end of that, you'd, you'd have an offtake. Um, so we need to get to bench scale and then pilot scale testing for that processing, which is, again, another reason why we start on that now. Right? Try to get ahead of the curve, start on the qualification process to lead to an offtake. One of the strategic visions we have, if you will, uh, about our project is we have the ability to scope out a very green project. And we're going to, you'll see, start to hear us talking about trying to aim for being the greenest lithium project in the world. And Why that's really important is, um, you know, outside of it's the right thing to do to try to scope out a uh, you know, quote unquote green project, the end users of an electric vehicle, the consumers, They're part of a, it's part of a a cultural shift, part of a thinking shift to reduce carbon footprint. And because of the stage we're at, we have the ability to incorporate some of those trade-offs in engineering now to look at various ways to um, reduce the footprint of our project. In the PEA, what we've already done is we've incorporated various things like we, for example, in our tailings, our, our waste disposal, we have dry stack tailings or filter tailings. That allows us to recycle up to 90% of the water that would otherwise be left in the tailings. So that's a great first step. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we have a, a sulfuric acid plant at site. So what that does, it takes a bulk dry sulfur, converts it to sulfuric acid on a one ton of dry for three tons of acid ratio. And through that process, steam steam created, we use in the processing after the leaching. And we also recapture the heat to produce enough energy. We produce about 18 megawatts. Um, that'll power the entire plant and have excess power. And, and that's a very clean, at scope from a Finnish company, it's a very clean um, power producer and a very clean acid plant. And the reason why that thinking is also important is because there's guidelines, draft guidelines coming down in the EU right now, and the EU is in the process of building out their own battery supply chain. And they're looking for, ultimately they're going to look for a full life cycle analysis from the raw material all the way down to that lithium getting in the battery, that lithium being in the car. And it will apply to cobalt, and will apply to nickel as well, uh, et cetera, graphite and magnesium. And so for us to think ahead and try to get ahead of the curve, I think what we'll be able to do is we'll be part of scoping on a project that can be one of the greater lithium projects in the world and with a low carbon footprint and that'll ultimately mean that we have a very desirable product um, once we get through that qualification step. So <clears throat> get ahead of the curve because it's coming and the car companies demand it which they're going to put it on the battery manufacturers, they're going to put it on the cathode nano processors and eventually it's going to come to the raw materials providers so rather than have you know a lot of sunk costs in an operation that doesn't have a very low carbon footprint we can get ahead of the curve and start to incorporate those things now and the way the world's changing there's an ability to do that without it being um, a higher economic cost and you get all the benefits of being
0: uh, more kind of environmentally conscious at the end of the day well, let's talk Macusani for a moment, Alex. Can you speak to that project as far as how you're setting the stage for potential discussions, offtake, et cetera, for when uranium prices are well underway? Can you speak to the, any efforts that are being done there uh, backstage?
1: Yeah, so what we've, uh, despite spending less capital on the project today, um, you know, we've, as we go to these various conferences, um, we make sure that we keep in touch with all of the traders um, I think the realities of today are, you know, we could sign an offtake with a trader today, but we're not going to get the price protections you would want, right? You want a floor, and you're willing to take a bit of a, a bit of a, a ceiling if the price moves massively, or at least a discount to that price if you get a floor. Um, but the traders aren't really thinking that way yet. They're not. They're not quite there yet. So, so I think the offtakes there when, um, when, when we need it. it is just. To your point, let's wait until we start to see see things move a bit. Um, In terms of the project itself, um, you know, we've been having, you know, we again through conferences and direct outreach have conversations with various other parties in the space. You know, thinking about the best way to move the project forward. Um, I think there's still there's still work we can do that. Improve the project. So recall that. Um, so ignore the uh, of the 32 concessions. Six of them impact the, um, the uranium resource. But putting that aside for now, um, we have 124 million pounds in resource, but only 70 million pounds make their way into the mine plan. And so, as we had talked about previously, but deferred that capital spend, spending some time on um, looking at pre-concentration because. The data that we had from Cameco and the data that we uh, looked after ourselves demonstrated uh, the ability to pre-concentrate. And so, what that would effectively mean is we could then relook at those other 50, 60 million pounds that are not part of the PEA mine plan um, as potentially economic, right? Because if we can take something that was below economic cutoff and, you know, increase the grade by 50 or 100 percent pre-concentration well all of a sudden we've got a better project and if we can look at the 70 million pounds and increase that grade by 50 or 100% we've got a better project so I think you know if capital with the regulations there and and assuming capital is not um, not constrained as it is today for for everyone um, I would spend we would invest in some capital in improving the project and again, they're not huge capital spends, it's, it's test work to, to demonstrate that there's more value there. And I think through doing that process, that will also um, open up the doors to potential parties. Maybe we, you know, joint venture, we, we spin out as, a, as another possibility that we've talked about before, um, separating the uranium and the lithium into two entities. Um, but again, that didn't make sense. And the boys said, doesn't make sense until there's regulations in country, and we see some kind of a stronger uranium market.
0: And then how's the uh, relationships with the utilities, Alex? Uh, who's leading up that effort, and is there some preliminary discussions going on at that point, or are you guys just really waiting for things to be more definitive as far as the project, the country, and also the market?
1: I think um, so, a bit of both. So. You know, again, these these conferences are great avenues to um, to touch base with some of the utilities. At the end of the day, we will we will go through a a trader, right, um, for for offtake. I think um, you know, and this was I don't remember, I think it was April. Um, so Ted O'Connor and and I went to. The uh, Fuel Cycle Conference in Miami, and we had an opportunity to chat with a few utility companies there. I think um, at that point in time, utilities were just waiting for 232 and to see what the outcome of that was. Um, realities are they they need uranium, and and some of them some of them care about the projects. I guess would probably be the best way, and they actually look into the technical and economic size of the projects providing the, the uranium. Uh, others just, just deal with the traders, basically. You know, So we're not a chemical because that's a problem. So I think um, our destiny is, is, is to work through a trader.
0: Can you speak a little bit on timing for MACUSANI, Alex? Obviously, it's more advanced than the lithium project. Assuming concession issues were resolved tomorrow and Peru implements uh, their framework for uranium transport export, what would be the timing for MACUSANI?
1: Well, nice thing about Mathesani is, as you, as you pointed out, it's more advanced than Felchani. Um, there's been a lot more uh, work spent on, on uh, or sorry, time and, and, and money spent on the project. Um, there's a lot more test work that's been completed, and so the projects actually, we think that there's, um, we could take that from a uh, current, like from a PEA stage, um, do the optimization work, etc. Perhaps do a, a you know, small update on the PEA, but effectively go bypass pre-feasibility and take it to feasibility. And so you'd be talking about infield drilling and uh, incorporating, you know, more of the um, to do some box leach testing, for example, or some 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 pilot scale testing. Um, and that would be roughly a two-year timeline. Um, We've uh, almost wrapped up. I think by the end of this year, we will have completed the archaeological study. So a member of point of question for people was this cultural area of significance um, surrounding the Makisani project. So Falcani, Lithium projects outside of that. We've completed an archaeological study across the whole area. So it's been an interaction between the Ministry of Culture and a professional archaeologist um, because, you know, Bear in mind, an archaeological study has never been done up here, and that area of significance was put in place because of a, uh, its actually an agronomist uh, that completed the study. And so, you know, I think we're quite optimistic on the outcome that has effectively shown that, you know, there's, 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 the only thing up here is, is some things that are worth salvaging, um, but they're being damaged by the natural environment. And that's a big part of that EIA, uh, environmental impact assessment permitting process. So the archeological study gets incorporated into that. And so we could see a, a two year, uh, slightly overlapping um, period of, of on that path to feasibility and, and the permitting. Um, so I think at the end of the day, pretty close to, um, to lithium project in terms of development timeline, but maybe more like two and a half years. Uh, so I'm including what I'm including in there is the overlapping of the EIA together with the feasibility study, and from there it's a shorter build time. It's I believe in the PEA is 15 months. We think we probably it, it could probably be a little bit less. But I think you've got a lot of different re-rating events or value events um, that happen between here and then, including you know potentially a better project with optimization work done. Um, you know, I would certainly, we would encourage uh, exploration in and around because, again, uh, and we touched on this in our first interview, the project came together as a series of concessions that were largely disconnected. Um, you know, Chemical had 30 million pounds, and that's not enough to move the needle for them, and, and Mackie Sandy Yellow Cake had about 60 million pounds, and by the time everything got consolidated, we got to 124, but no one drilled in between the pits on that trend um so that kind of those those targets are really low-hanging fruit that i think uh, are worthy of spending a bit of a bit of exploration dollars on because all of those could, could change the project for the better and, and otherwise you know we have the project as it is long way to answer your question but, but call it two and a half years
0: very well, can you speak to a rough figure for all in sustaining costs for Maccusani under the anticipated production scenario that was outlined uh, I believe it was in the pre feasibility study?
1: yep, I think we were so cash costs were around seventeen and uh, total costs would have come in around it was just under twenty it was what nineteen fifty or something Let's call it call it twenty dollars
0: and mergers and acquisition Alex. Has there been any interest with getting together with peers, specifically in the uranium space, to potentially unlock more value here and to further de-risk? Or do you feel like the company needs to advance the MACUSANI project further before those discussions can start, or has there been some interest? We've had those
1: conversations because it's a large project, it's got an attractive cost profile, that's low capex, Peru gets mining. Um, Where people get held up is definitely on, you know, they're trying to understand the regulatory framework, right, which is in the process of happening. So if you walked into the Ministry of Energy and Mines office today, they would tell you you don't need a law to mine uranium, but we need the regulations in place to be able to transport and export it. I think that 2020 will be, you know, a good year. The ministry delivers on what they've guided people to recently. I think that will open up doors quite a bit. Um, You know, I think that there's there's not a lot of development projects out there with the kind of profile that our project has. That you've got the ability to grow, but you've also got um, you know attractive, call it economic profile of a a project. Um, But getting but showing that um, that willingness of the government to put in place regulations for one project. I think it's a huge, huge statement of being able to have the confidence confidence in the permanent path for this project. And I think that's probably a bit of a, uh, something that people are just sort of taking a bit of a wait and see. There's also no urgency to react today because the uranium price hasn't done anything. No one's truly building a project today. What we do, our job is to just make sure that we're on the radar of uh, you know various corporates so that as we evolve as we see the market come back a bit um, that we do have other options outside of you know just advancing it ourselves or spinning it out and advancing it with a similar team because you know if you look at the development pipeline of projects I really don't see a lot of projects out there that um, that will work at the same levels that Marcus Sandy works at cost profile wise. And they're just not there so that gives us a huge benefit but we you know we're in a waiting period and we have a, a little bit of work cut out for us too just to showcase but i think those kicking the tire conversations become more meaningful as the contract prices come around and we start to see more certainty there um, i think we'll be probably a scramble to find good development stage projects because nobody's been investing in them for 10 years
0: right that certainly is the case Alex, for potential investors who are on the sidelines or even those investors who have some position now in Plateau, what would you say to them at this stage and at current price levels?
1: Well, current investors, I would say thank you for the ongoing support. You know, we're dealing with obviously something, uh, a tremendous challenge, but I think um, our ability to navigate this path this far um, is really a statement to to the strength of our team. Um, so, from a current investor and then also from a prospective investor standpoint, I mean, I think it's a, you know, it, it, it comes down to simple math, right? So, you look at, um, if you wanted to take a worst case scenario, look for alternative, look for our alternative case, PEA on a lithium project, and then look at the peer group. And the peer group trades between 10 and 25%, 30% of NAB. Okay, and then compare that to where we're trading at, and you'll see a disconnect in the ice. And then for the, you know, and then your upside case is, well, if it's this, then we can take all of the uranium PEA economic NPV and all of the base case lithium project NPV, and arguably it should trade somewhere in around the median range of the peer group too, which is, is around 20% of the Navy. And that is a significant disconnect from where we're trading at today.
0: Well, Alex, I want to take the time to to certainly thank you for the update with Plateau. Um, We continue to support the stock over here at Smith Weekly Research, and uh, we're looking forward to having you back again soon to, to give us further updates as we progress.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Your pleasure.